Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Not So Grateful Dead podcast. It is your host, Grayson Decker, back at it again with another lovely Sunday episode. I hope you're doing wonderful today. This is episode number 24, and it is part two to episode number 23 that was posted on Wednesday. So make sure you go listen to that one and then meet me back here and listen to this one. But yeah, I think that's about it. I really hope that you enjoy this part two. Have a wonderful time. All right, you guys. So like I stated, if you did not listen to part one, please go do so because you will miss out on a lot of the details that really involve like the background information as to why we are where we are in this case. Uh, And you'll really get an idea about what this case really involves. So go do yourself a favor, listen to part one, and then come back and listen to part two and join us. But if you did listen to Wednesday's episode, let's get on into it. As we discussed in part one, the Lindbergh family had been battling with the kidnapper or kidnappers who abducted their son, Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. The kidnappers then obtained the $50,000 in ransom money just for the family to find out that Charles Jr. had been sadly murdered and deceased for around two months throughout the whole entire ransom money debacle. He had, in fact, been deceased, which is just so upsetting. On May 23rd, 1932, the New York City FBI informed all of the banks in the surrounding areas to keep an eye out for the ransom money because as we talked about, the exchange of money happened with Dr. Condon, who acted as the mediator between the kidnapper and the Lindbergh family in New York City. Not New York City, New York, sorry. On May 26, 1932, the New Jersey State Police announced that there would be a reward for any information resulting in the capture of the kidnapper or kidnappers who were responsible responsible for this terrible act, and this reward would be $25,000. There was also flyers that were made about this reward, and these were sent out about the area. On June 10th, 1932, there was a waitress who was at the home of Anne Moreau Lindbergh's mother, Miss Dwight Moreau. This waitress was Violet Sharp. Violet Sharp had been under investigation by authorities and they wanted to question her a second time about the investigation. The same day that Violet Sharp was scheduled to be re-questioned, she, trigger warning, died by suicide. Now this obviously seems incredibly suspicious, but authorities found that on March 1st, 1932, when Charles Jr. was abducted, there was no connection to Violet Sharp with the kidnapping and they had ruled her out as a suspect at this point in the investigation. President D. Franklin Roosevelt made an announcement requiring all gold and gold certificates to be returned to the treasury. When he made this announcement, the majority of the ransom money was still outstanding. Up to $40,000 of the ransom money had been paid in gold certificates after this proclamation. And what I understood from my research and what the FBI wrote about this case is that the perpetrator, this John Alias, took the $50,000 in cash and got it transferred to a different currency, this currency being the gold certificates. And I imagine that during this transfer of currencies, the serial numbers for the cash that the Lindbergh family had originally given to Dr. Condon was somehow recorded. And this is how they knew that $40,000 of the ransom money had been paid back in these gold 
certificates when President Roosevelt said to return them to the treasury. If that made any sense, I'm so sorry. This was found to be extremely helpful in this case. Back on May 2nd of 1933, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York noticed that there had been 296 10 gold certificates and one $20 gold certificate that had been deposited. These were all Lindbergh ransom bills. These certificates had been deposited at one time, like all at one time, and after it was realized that these were in fact the Lindbergh ransom certificates, the Federal Reserve Bank looked back on the deposit tickets from May 1st, 1993. These tickets were found to have belonged to J.J. Faulkner, and the address that was attached to J.J. Faulkner's name was 537 West 149th Street. It was labeled with gold certificates, 10 and $20, in the amount of $2,980. Authorities tried relentlessly to track down J.J. Faulkner, but they never had any luck actually locating this unknown depositor. On January 17, 1934, there was a letter sent out by the New York City Bureau Office, and this letter was sent to all banks and their different branches in New York City. The purpose of this letter was to bring awareness to the idea of paying extremely close attention to any ransom certificates that may come through the banks. In February of 1934, all of the Bureau's offices were given this pamphlet, and this pamphlet held all of the serial numbers from the ransom bills. After this, these pamphlets were then given to every single employee that was handling currency in the banks, clearinghouses, grocery stores, insurance companies, gasoline filling stations, airports, department stores, post offices, and telegraph companies. So as we can tell, it seemed as though the authorities were making sure they had eyes everywhere. They were patiently waiting to see where this money would come through, and when. Along with this pamphlet, the Bureau Office also handed out currency key cards, and these cards would show the serial number of the ransom notes which had been paid. There was a huge amount of misinformation being spread about this case throughout the entirety of the investigation. As one can imagine, this made it really difficult for authorities to differentiate between what was factual and what was false. There were tons of letters sent in to authorities by attention seekers, frauds, and overall just deranged people who wanted to be part of this huge investigation. And I don't know why you would want to be a part of something so cruel and upsetting, but I digress. Of course, the authorities had to sift through all of these possible pieces of evidence, but really they didn't find anything of value in all of these letters. There were thousands of leads throughout the years, but they still had no idea who this kidnapper or kidnappers were. Throughout this investigation, there was handwriting analysis done on the physical ransom notes themselves. When these were analyzed by multiple different handwriting experts, they all came to the same conclusion that all of the letters were, in fact, written by the same individual. They also found that this writer most likely was of German nationality and they had spent some time in America. Now, as we can remember from part one of this case, there was only ever 
two different people who interacted with the kidnapper or someone who was working for them. We talked about an unidentified man who went by the alias of John, and this would be who Dr. Condon gave the money to and who Joseph Perone, the cab driver that delivered the letter to Dr. Condon from this unknown man. Dr. Condon, when asked to describe the John guy, stated that he would describe him as Scandinavian. He looked through photo after photo of potential suspects, but none of them were this man that he saw and interacted with. The FBI then hired a forensic artist who prepared a portrait of John. The artist obtained the descriptors from both Dr. Condon and Joseph Perone to carry out this portrait. After Dr. Condon helped with the sketch of the perpetrator, he was also asked to prepare transcripts of all of the conversations that he had had with this John. In March of 1934, these conversations were then transcribed by Dr. Condon on phonography records, and during these recordings, Dr. Condon imitated exactly how he could recall the perpetrator speaking. I'm talking about things like pronunciation and dialect to really capture this John persona and how he spoke. They did this in an attempt to really see what all they could gain from the way he imitated John speaking. Could they possibly figure out the nationality of the person, their education, their mentality, or maybe like the character of this perpetrator? What could they gain from these recordings? In another attempt to identify John, the authorities really honed in on the ladder that was used the night of the kidnapping to reach Charles Jr.'s nursery that was on the second floor of the Lindbergh family home. We spoke in part one about how the ladder was found broken where the two pieces connect, but this second look was much more detailed and centered around the type of wood and hardware used, tool marks, and did it possibly have any fingerprints on it? There was an expert called in for this exact examination, and his name was Arthur Kohler, and he was part of the Forest Service United States Department of Agriculture. Arthur Kohler carried out an intense examination of this ladder, essentially taking it apart piece by piece to examine every single aspect of it. He was able to identify certain types of wood used, and he also found and examined tool marks used to build this ladder. There was also a pattern on some of the wood, and this pattern seemed to have been made by nail holes, which indicated to him that the wood had been used previously for indoor usage. He was able to even trace some of the wood down, and then he compiled all of this valuable information into a report. Between the months of August and September, there were a total of 16 gold certificates recovered, and these all seemed to surround Yorkville and Harlem, New York. Every single time there was a certificate located, authorities would take a pen and put it on a large map of the metropolitan area. They did this in an attempt to follow the movement of the kidnapper or kidnappers. Investigators then got their big lead. One of these times when a certificate had been obtained, the individuals handling the certificate were able to give a detailed description of the depositor. 
This description perfectly matched the description that Dr. Condon had given the authorities in the sketch that was provided by the artist. Sorry, my voice is going in and out. Investigators also found that it seemed as though the majority of these certificates had been found circulating through corner grocery stores. And like we spoke about earlier, the pamphlets that were given to all these different kinds of stores that involved obtaining currency, handling currency, this included grocery stores. So all of these employees knew that these certificates were in fact part of the ransom money. On September 18th, 1934, the assistant manager of the Corn Exchange Bank and Trust Company made a phone call to the New York City Bureau office, letting them know that a $10 certificate had been discovered by a teller at their bank just minutes prior to the phone call. It was found out that this certificate had actually been given to the bank by a gas station and it was located on 127th Street and Lexington Avenue and this was in New York. On September 15th, 1934, so just three days prior to the bank phone call, there was a gas station attendant working who had received payment for five gallons of gas from a man that closely fit the same exact description of John that Dr. Condon had given. This man paid for his gas with a $10 gold certificate, which which the gas station attendant found to be suspicious. So, being the obviously intelligent man that he was, he wrote the license plate number on the physical gold certificate and took it to the bank. This license plate number was registered to Bruno Richard Hauptmann, and his address was 1279 East 222nd Street in Bronx, New York. So very close to where the actual exchange between him and Dr. Condon took place. That very same evening, the home of Bruno Hauptmann was surveilled, and authorities watched his home until about 9 a.m. on September 19th, 1934. Around that time, someone who looked exactly like the description provided to authorities walked out of the home and then to his vehicle that was parked on the street. Authorities capture the man and take him into custody, and this man was found to be Bruno Hauptmann, and he had been a German carpenter, and he had actually been in the United States for around 11 years at the time of his capture. And as we can remember from earlier, the handwriting analysis proved to investigators that the perpetrator was most likely German, and they had been living in America for some time. So it was quite literally spot on. There was also a $20 gold certificate found on Bruno Hauptmann upon his capture and when investigators carried out a search of his home they found that he had purchased some shoes with a $20 ransom bill just days before on September 8th 1934. Not only this but investigators had actually found a gas can in the home's garage that held even more gold certificates amounting to $13,000 that was tied to the Lindbergh ransom money. So quite telling that he is obviously involved here. Bruno Hauptmann was then positively identified by both Joseph Perone and Dr. Condon. Bruno also owned a Dodge sedan and it was reported during the initial interviews in this case that a car matching this description had been around the Lindbergh family home just the day before the kidnapping. 
After the apprehension of Bruno, authorities had to make it extremely clear that he was in fact the kidnapper of Charles Jr. We can already see that they had quite a bit of evidence against him at the very beginning, but to go even further, investigators sent Bruno's handwriting to an analyzer in Washington, D.C. They found that there was an immense amount of similarities. Upon further investigation into the background of Bruno Hauptmann, investigators uncovered that he was was 35 years old, he had been a native of Saxony, Germany, and he had a criminal record. This criminal record had been for robbery, and because of this record, Bruno had actually spent some time in prison already. He had failed twice while trying to get into the United States, but in November of 1923, sorry, he finally successfully entered the United States. He eventually got married, he had a son, and then he began his work as a carpenter. On September 26, 1934, Bruno Hauptmann was indicted for murder in Hunterdon County, New Jersey. He was held in the Hunterdon County Jail while he awaited trial. The trial for Bruno Hauptmann, sorry, began on January 3rd, 1935, and it went on to be five weeks in length. The case presented against him was mainly built on circumstantial evidence, and some of the evidence that was presented included tool marks that were matching those of tools found at Bruno's home. The wood from the ladder matched the wood from the attic of his home, and Dr. Condon's phone number and address were found written on the inside of a door frame of the home of Bruno Hauptmann. So, very damning evidence, if you ask me, but I digress. On February 13th, 1935, Bruno Hauptmann was found guilty of murder in the first degree, and he was sentenced to death. On April 3rd, 1936, at 8.47 p.m., Bruno Richard Hauptmann died by electrocution. This is the case of the Lindbergh kidnapping. I hope you all enjoyed it. I will include all of the pictures, including handwriting samples, the gas can, and the sketch of him. Sorry, I like blanked momentarily on all of my social medias. So if you would like to get a glance at that, all of the visuals surrounding this case, please go do so. I love you all and I will see you Wednesday for a new case. I'm going to give you my socials real quick and then I'm going to let you go. I have an email and it is the not so grateful dead pod at gmail.com. I have a website, the not so grateful dead dot podbean.com. I have an Instagram, the not so grateful dead underscore podcast. I have a TikTok, the Not So Grateful Dead pod, and I have a Facebook, the Not So Grateful Dead podcast with Grace and Decker. All right, have a wonderful rest of your day. I'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.